Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. Do we choose to be melancholic? How do we define it? And is there a connection between melancholy and the intellect? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to meet with two thought-provoking women, one a novelist, the other a landscape architect, writers of extraordinary insight, imagination and sensitivity. Dr. Avril Horner and Dr. Anne Rowe discuss the complex and unconventional life of Irish-born British novelist Iris Murdoch. Human frailty was a big topic, and I think that's what makes the novels, the brilliant novels that they are, the way that she can make you feel some kind of sympathy for the most awful people, and the way that she goes into such depths of understanding of people, so much so that you come away from reading the novels thinking, how can she know so much about me? And they mean something, and we learn something. I've been teaching her novels now for 25 years, and generations of students have gone away and said, I think about things differently now after reading Iris Murdoch. And so to me, it's the novels that will take their place in the history of the 20th century. And Dr. Jackie Barring explains why melancholy holds such artistic appeal. This is a show about desire and intimacy, friendship and obsession, and the pleasure of being sad. But first, destroy this and all letters and keep your mouth shut. Iris Murdoch is unquestionably one of the most perceptive and versatile writers and thinkers of the 20th century. Born on Blessington Street in the north side of Dublin in 1919, Iris was the only child of Anglo-Irish parents. Interestingly, Iris was later known for being somewhat ambivalent and unsentimental about her Irish background. In 1982, she stated, It's a terrible thing to be Irish. Now, in her lifetime, Iris Murdoch produced 26 novels, six plays, two volumes of poetry and a radio opera, not to mention countless philosophical essays and academic journals. Iris's popular novels include Under the Net, The Sea, The Sea, The Sandcastle, The Bell and The Sacred and the Profane Love Machine. In 1956, Iris married John Bailey, the Wharton Professor of English at Oxford University. And despite Murdoch's multiple affairs, the couple remained married until Murdoch's death in 1999. Dr. Anne is a reader in English literature and the director of the Centre for Iris Murdoch Studies at Kingston University. Dr. Avril Horner is Emeritus Professor of English at Kingston University, London. Well, Anne and Avril have just published Living on Paper, Letters from Iris Murdoch, 1934 to 1995 for Chateau Windus. Well, over the weekend, I had the pleasure of talking with the book's editors. I asked Anne about Iris Murdoch's complex emotional landscape and why she so craved intimacy. Well, I think that was partly her nature. She said she came from a family where she, which was she describes as a perfect trinity of love with her parents. And that need for closeness and intimacy perhaps was generated by this idyllic childhood that she, she always says that she had with her parents. And I think also the writer in her, the creative writer, that craved knowledge and understanding. She said that the most important thing for a writer to do was to be able to create various levels of consciousness, the inner life of characters, and getting to know people 
people, getting to know what made them tick, getting to know the real details of their life and their feelings was something that she needed and she coveted to be the great artist that she always wanted to be. Now, you quote uh, Peter Conradi in your introductions, and it's a very revealing and very interesting comment that he made in his uh, 2001 book, where he said that pen friendship offered her a cost-free intimacy, a point of entry into the imaginative worlds of others, and a stage in which to try her own persona. The voices in the novels vary enormously. She seemed to be able to develop a different voice for each person and each person felt I think that that voice was quite particular something very special to them and when she was dealing with all these different people different aspects of her needs different aspects of her personality come through in the different voices that she creates for for each of them for example to Raymond Cuno the French writer there is a deep sense of love and intimacy there that's very different for example from letters to her friend Michael Oakeshott, who she does pillage his life and his relationships a great deal for her books. You can see that the links coming through from the letters to Oakeshott and the books. Whereas with Raymond Cuno, who doesn't seem to make an appearance in the novels, that level of intimacy and the level of genuine love in the letters uh, comes through quite clearly. So there's a different voice and a different approach to writing letters that comes through for all these correspondents. And that's something that makes the book itself fascinating and gripping to read because you just don't know what voice will appear in the next letter. Do you think there was two Iris Murdochs, do you? I think there were many, 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 not just two Iris Murdochs. I think the complexity of her character and the different things that she needed to give and the different things she needed to get from people manifested itself in in many different ways. And I mean, what one of the things that this book does is give a huge insight into the complexity of the woman that she was. She was different. She was different to the, the Iris Murdoch we thought we knew from the biography. Um, and that's what the letters do, give you these various personalities. Like Proteus, she could change. She, could sh- she was a shapeshifter. She would change and become somebody quite different. Sometimes it was quite deliberate. She would try and be, particularly in her 1940s when she was desperate to be married and she was going through relationships with different men, she would often construct a personality that she thought that person wanted. Now, in other letters, she is just attempting to be honest and be herself. And that self was very different often to what people thought. So the letters become protean in different senses. Avril, I might get you to come in on that point because clearly the different tones that she took in the letters listed different types of information. She was very intimate and some very sensitive, very gentle to others, very passionate, driven and forceful to others in her correspondences. So do you think that she was testing the ground and using it for her fiction in some way? Yes, I think um, Anne was absolutely right when she says that all these different relationships feed into the novel in the character. I mean, what she does is fragment the characters. Um, the, the real people she knows, she fragments them and takes pieces of them and they are built into the characters in her novels. Um, and as we've said, she herself has many voices. And in her marriage to John Bailey, at times I think he was 
confused and puzzled by her need to go off with other people. And at one point she says, and, and this is quoted in Conrad's biography, hang on to me, hang on to me, I'm like Proteus if you hang on to me. In the myth, of course, um, if you can hang on to Proteus, then he stops changing, he becomes stable. She was aware of this sort of rainbow aspect of herself, but she didn't want it to damage her marriage. And she did have all these, as you say, intense relationships with other people, but there was a core at the centre of her life after she was married, which was the stability of her marriage, which was a very unusual marriage, a very open marriage in many ways. Now, her letters to Bridget Brophy, she had a relationship with her for over 12 years. Very conflictual at times, very passionate. And they both did a lot of growing up, would it be fair to say, sexually as they got closer in their relationship. Yes, I think when you look at the people she... Murdoch becomes passionate about and has very intense relationships with. They are all brilliant. You know, they are genius level people like Raymond Cuno, who was a polymath. Canetti, you know, who again spoke many languages and was a, a European intellectual. Brophy, who herself was fantastically gifted. She wrote novels, she wrote plays, um, she wrote poetry, she was an intellectual who wrote on Freud. I think Murdoch was entranced by this one because Brophy was not only all these things, she was very beautiful. And they had a very, as you say, volatile relationship. But Murdoch got an awful lot from it. It was Brophy who persuaded Murdoch to go back to Freud. Murdoch had rejected Freud many years ago. Brophy was very keen on Freud and psychoanalysis, so she persuades Murdoch to reread Freud. She introduces Murdoch to Genet, Jean Genet, the sort of um, avant-garde French writer. They have conversations about Mozart in their letter, and, Mur- and Murdoch feeds back to Brophy all sorts of things about classical literature and, and literature generally, and encourages Brophy to get, return to fiction. So it's a very rich relationship in that both women supported the other, but they could also lash out. Brophy more than Murdoch, and there are several letters, as you would have seen, where Murdoch sort of feel she's had wounds inflicted on her because Brophy has lost her temper and rejected Murdoch temporarily. And Murdoch could be deeply hurt by this sort of irrational behaviour. And I think by the end of the 12-year relationship, in a strange way, it seems to have been something of a relief for Murdoch to be able to move on because, as you know, Brophy then became involved with Maureen Duffy and, and the relationship with Murdoch became far less intense, although they did keep in touch until Brophy died of a multiple sclerosis. Now, there were two constants in her life, apart from her husband. One was Sister Marion of Stanbrook Abbey, and there are lovely letters to her and very touching. Certainly at the end, there are some very, very sad letters, really. The other is her friendship. Uh, I think it was over six decades nearly with the philosopher Philippa Foote. They fell out, they fell back in, they fell back out. But they seem to have both had a huge respect for each other in lots of different ways. Yes, they did. That's absolutely right. And they're both very intellectual women who were trying to break ground in philosophy and both succeeded in, in so doing. I think it's interesting. The relationship with, with Foote, Philippa Foote, I think is, is quite different from that with Bridget Brophy, although Murdoch clearly loved them both, in that Murdoch was 10 years older than Brophy and treated her in some ways, well, as the younger lover. She, she says that sometimes in letters. Philippa Foote, although they were much the same age, Murdoch was sometimes almost intimidated by Philippa Foote's intellect. And in a couple of letters, she likens Philippa Foote to an older sister. And I think also Philippa Foote was a more stable presence in her life than Brophy. We've talked about the excitement of the relationship with Brophy, which was very volatile. But Philippa Foote was a much more steady personality. And as you say, although they fell out, that was mainly because of things that Murdoch did. They were upset mainly because of the way Murdoch had behaved. And also the marriage to MRD Foote meant because... 
Murdoch had been involved with uh, Michael Foote at some point earlier in her life, meant it was uncomfortable. But it was Murdoch who made it difficult for herself in many ways. Philippa Foote was a very, seems to be a very wise and rational person. And for that reason, I think Murdoch thinks of her as an older sister person, although, as I say, they were much the same age. And she deeply, deeply admired Philippa Foote's intellect. Now, I was quite surprised to read about David Morgan, a student of hers whom she met when she was about 46. Yes. And she had a very personal relationship with him. I think they kissed at one stage, but she was 20 years older. She was obviously married uh, to John Bailey. I'm just wondering about her judgment call on that, because clearly boundaries were crossed. You say that her artistic ambition was to create a moral psychology. So how does her dealings with her students tally up to all of that? She was very generous now to her students and she bailed them out on numerous occasions. But there was one or two whether there was questionable relationships, whether in today's world you could be fired, possibly. Yes. Um, No, I think that's right. The relationship with David Morgan, I think, was fired at first. I mean, if you look at that photo of David Morgan, he was a very handsome young man. And it was fired by the fact that he was a creative artist, a painter. Murdoch loved art, and many of the letters talk about visiting galleries, the artists she loves. And in one letter to an artist friend, Harry Weinberger, she's the, she says, oh, lucky painter, oh, lucky artist. She, she envied artists. She thought they could always get on and sketch and draw. You know, she could be stuck writing a novel, but an artist could always do something. So she was quite romantic about artists, and that's probably one of the reasons why she took the job at the Royal College of Art, to be in the company of actual painters. And David Morgan was a young painter, a handsome young painter, and there's a letter where she talks rather fondly of the paint in his hair. And I I think she did have a rather touching belief that he could become a great artist. Now, he didn't achieve that, although he did achieve a stable career as um, someone who managed art departments in higher education institutions. And I think she helped him a lot to have faith in himself. And he was a young man who, by his own admission, had had a, a, a very, very difficult period in his teens and 20s uh, when he was institutionalised for a time. His character certainly becomes fragmented in certain novels where you meet characters who've been damaged in their early years. And there are a variety of ways of handling that in the novels, and some turn out well and some not so well. Yes, by today's standards, that relationship would be seen as transgressive. And you could today, if you, you know, if you were conducting that sort of relationship, you would certainly be warned and possibly shown the door. We are much more careful these days about those boundaries in education, and rightly so. But, you know, in the 1960s, when I was at university, students were often considered first sexual game by their tutors. And we're talking about that decade when Murdoch was at the RCA. So times have changed, and we have to remember that when we look back at those letters. Do you think she just had to be in love, or just demanded these incredibly strong relationships? Because there's, on some occasions you have, as you go through the book, there's quite intense correspondences or blocks of correspondences with different people in her lives. So she, would it be too strong to say that she developed fixations or obsessions in some way, (laughs) emotional obsessions with certain people at certain stages in her life? She did. The letters tend to be written in blocks that she did develop obsessions with, with various people. She also has a rather strange ability to move on from one to the other rather quickly. Now, she gives this ability to many of her characters in the novels. And for many years, I used to say to my students, oh, don't take too much notice of that. Uh, It's just she's playing with time. She hasn't got time to give us six months in between these big relationships. You know, it's just a condensation of the novel form to suit her philosophical purposes. I don't think that anymore. 
I think that it was something about her personality that not many people I know share, and I certainly don't share. She had the ability to move on, to progress from one quite obsessional relationship to another at some speed. Uh, and this is, you know, one of the differences. She was a different human being, I think, in many ways to many people. And, and that difference is manifests itself. And it's something you just have to accept about her, uh, that this was an ability she had to be deeply involved with one person for quite a long period of time and then to move on very quickly into another but reasonably obsessional relationship with someone else. Would you have been her friend? Like, you have gone through over 5,000 letters. Yes. And, you know, I'm sure there's more will come your way as the book sales go. But I was fascinated by some of the letters and she surrounded herself with hugely interesting people, all artists, philosophers, writers. But I don't know would I have trusted her as a friend. (laughs) Well, you know, I understand what you mean when you say that. But I can honestly say that in all the people that we've interviewed and in everything that we've read about all the people whose life with whom she was involved, everyone loved her. And they all felt that... They trusted her absolutely, that she she was kind and good. And we have never heard a bad word, I think, said about her by any of them. And, you know, in all the 5,000 letters that we read, never once does she criticise. There's never any backbiting. There is never an unkind word. You know, she can be justly critical of people. Well, occasionally, David Morgan, she says, you know, it's about time you got yourself a good taste. But she does that to his face. She never speaks about David Morgan in any derogatory way to any of them. And you never find any of the letters discussing any of the other correspondents. It's just not there. She had huge integrity about preserving her fondness for, for people and never being critical of people behind their back. Now, Avril, I'm going to put a dodgy quote to you, which was said by Martha Nussbaum, who is an American philosopher. I think she's based in Harvard. And she said Murdoch was unable to live up to her own definition of moral goodness and that she was self-absorbed, controlling and predatory. Yes, yes, I've seen that quotation. It's a very, it's a hard one to call because she clearly was a superb mentor. Yeah. And she was very compassionate and kind to some people. Yeah. But others, when you read the letters, they're so draining almost. Yes, yes. So where do you stand in all of that? Well, I think as a philosopher who writes about the good in the abstract and as a great admirer of Simone Veil's work, anyone would find it impossible to live up to those abstract ideals. And I think Murdoch did at times. But if you look across her life, there is a sort of shifting pattern. I think it's I think it's fair comment to say that when she's younger, she is quite self-obsessed and self-absorbed. And, you know, at one point she's worrying all the time about, you know, getting married and will she be a great writer? And that's fairly characteristic of younger people. As she gets older, I think that becomes less so. Certainly after she starts to think about deeply about Simone Veil's work and what she calls paying proper attention to the other. Absorbing what the other says, listening carefully, trying to empathise with them so that you come out of your own obsessions became something that she she really wanted to pursue in her own life. And ironically, it's also what makes her a good novice, I think, because she does listen. I mean, this is partly why, as Anne said, she was so loved, because everyone thought that she listened especially carefully to them. In the end, I think, as you know, as it's a truism, but as she becomes older, she becomes wiser and less demanding of people. I think certainly the last 30 years of her life, she gives out 
a lot more than she takes from people. And like all of us, you know, she she matures and she does try to live up to those ideals. But those ideals are, you know, they are abstract ideals and very hard to live up to every single hour of the day. It's funny when you say that because it struck me when I read some of her letters to David Hicks. He was her first big lover, so to speak. They were engaged. But he seems he backed off. He broke up their engagement. But she she paid a price for her demands to him. And it took her quite some time to maybe intuit how to play people in certain ways. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. I think she I think Hicks was frightened by her. The passion, the brilliance of her intellect, her obsessive neediness for reassurance and, you know, all those things frightened him, frightened him off. And a letter I'd love to have read would have been any correspondences she had while she was travelling with her husband, John Bailey, because she had to make a lot of intriguing explanations to him over the years for different absences and her intense bonds and relationships with men and women. But there are no letters, as far as we know. No, and strangely, she she rarely travelled alone. When they travelled abroad, uh, particularly in the later years, they travelled and did lectures for the British Council and she hated being away from him and very often when she got back when she did have to travel alone the first thing she would do would be to find a telephone box to ring John to hear his voice but so for that reason I think we have not been able to track any letters at all to John Bailey I don't think that there are any in existence when they moved from their house in Steeple Aston into the centre of Oxford she says in one of the letters you know they burned they had a real pyre in the garden and they burned much of the stuff that was in the loft. I have a feeling that if there were any letters, they were probably destroyed at that point in time. We tried very hard. And, you know, uh, one critic actually uh, criticised us for not explaining why we didn't have letters. We say quite clearly in our introduction, we have tried, as far as we're aware, there are none. Some may come to light. John Bailey himself died in January this year. And now maybe when his papers are distributed, there, there may be a few. We don't know. How should we remember her, Anne? Should, do we, should we remember her as the great writer of The Sea, The Sea, The Bell, The Sandcastle? Yes. Or should we also maybe look at her philosophy and her different writing? I think she was a fine philosopher and I think what differentiates her from other mid-20th century philosophers and one of the reasons that she broke with the Oxford tradition was that she felt that a moral philosophy, she said, must be inhabited and that any philosophy that had no meaning to ordinary people and the way that people live their lives really didn't have the impact that she felt she wanted her own philosophy to have. So the novels, in a sense, are a way of testing out the moral philosophy that she puts forward in her own work and seeing how it works, seeing the impact that it has on people, how far people can live up to it. And, and human frailty was her big topic. And I think that's what makes the novels, the brilliant novels that they are, the way that she can make you feel some kind of sympathy for the most awful people and the way that she goes into such depth of understanding of people, so much so that you come away from reading the novels thinking, how can she know so much about me? And they mean something and we learn something. I've been teaching her novels now for 25 years and generations of students have gone away and said, I think about things differently now after reading Iris Murdoch and so to me it's the novels that will take their place in the history of the 20th century. And is Iris deservedly known as one of the greatest writers of the 20th century? Do you think that still stands though her reputation has somewhat waned over the last few years? 
Strangely enough, I think in popular culture, I mean, people used to queue up for the latest Iris Murdoch. Possibly fewer members of the public are reading her, but we have conferences on Iris Murdoch every two years at Kingston University. They attract around about 100 scholars from all over the world. Now, that is remarkable for a conference on a single author. At the last conference, we had delegates from over, more than 15 countries attending. There is a huge body of Murdoch scholarship taking place in Spain, in Turkey, in America. You know, she is being studied at a very sophisticated level by scholars all over the world. We might end on a letter. What one would that be? My favourite letter that I usually end up on is a letter to one of his students at the Royal College of Art. Rachel Fenner, where you can actually see her own moral philosophy in operation, where she is telling Rachel that any kind of love has value, even though that love may be hopeless, because Rachel uh, loved her deeply and Iris knew that that couldn't go anywhere, that Rachel's love for her was in some way futile. But she tries to reassure her by saying that all love has value and that this relationship between them is not wasted all this talk about love and obsession and suffering, uh, you tend to forget that she's a comic writer. The novels are funny. They're deeply funny as well as being deeply moving and deeply challenging. So at our book launch, we we finished up by reading a a very funny letter, you know, because we wanted to end on a a somewhat lighter note to, to remember that she covered all aspects of human experience and the ridiculousness of being human is in there as well and the funny side. The letter is written to Bridget Brophy from Stiefel Aston in April 1974. Thanks for the exciting news. Frank seems to be one of those words that set people off. I forget if I told you that I met JM once. I think at a party at number 10. That was the night when I overheard our PM, then Harold Wilson, saying complacently, everyone who makes Britain tick is here tonight. I was gratified then, but cannot feel now that I am making Britain tick. Can hardly tick myself. Mainspring broken. At least I have written a letter to the Times attacking Reg Prentice, only I don't suppose they'll print it. Tick on thou, love, I. P.S. Reflecting on the evident impact of Frank, I think I told you once, or did you tell me, that market research has shown that the most commercially attractive words in a novel title were doctor and naked. Recently I saw that similar research had turned up Tangier as a good word. Title, therefore, of my next novel, Tangier Frank, The Naked Doctor. That was Dr. Avril Horner and Dr. Anne Rowe from Kingston University, London, Living on Paper, Letters from Iris Murdoch, 1934-1995, is published by Chatham Windus and retails for in around €30 Euros in hardback.
Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Now, if there's a book or author you'd like me to cover on the show, well, why don't you drop me an email at talkingbooksandnewstalk.com. It's always lovely hearing from you. Really lovely. So don't be shy. OK, let's stick with the theme of intensity and the novel and unpack why we have such a love-hate relationship with melancholy. OK, here's a quick one for you. What is American painter Edward Hopper got in common with Swedish director Ingmar Bergman, Irish playwright Samuel Beckett, British poet Gerard Manley Hopkins and Australian singer Nick Cave. Hi, my name is Jackie Bowring. I'm Professor of Landscape Architecture at Lincoln University in New Zealand. A Field Guide to Melancholy was a response to at first trying to write a book about melancholy and landscape and thinking about the kinds of places in the world that are melancholy some of the more obvious ones like cemeteries and memorials as well as just certain feelings about certain places and finding that I couldn't find a good book that kind of gave an introduction to ideas about melancholy. So I ended up writing that one first, um, which is what turned into the field guide. So Jackie, I'm just going to ask you a big wide open, if a little crazy question. Do you think that cities or landscapes or certain locations can have a psychic state? I'm thinking of Aaron Pamuk, who wrote the incredible book, Istanbul. Yes, I think very much so. Um, cities and landscapes do have a psychic state. And it's something that, well, the, the first time I really got introduced to it was reading about Sigmund Freud, who wrote about, and in particular, he wrote about Rome and how Rome is like the mind. And he had a kind of a conflicted explanation about how that worked. But the basic sort of premise of it was that a city collects the layers of memory through building, rebuilding, ruins, all those kinds of things, and, and provides this kind of a model of the mind, which is quite interesting. And our mind works in the same way. So in that case, the city was a, a metaphor for the mind. And then when you start thinking about that in reverse, you start realising that the, um, the mind is also a metaphor for the city and thinking about how, indeed, places like Istanbul have this sense, you know, psychic sense, yes, a, a presence, all of the memories that go with it, those feelings, it can be hurt and damaged. And here in, in Christchurch, when we had an earthquake which has ruined most of the city, it was a feeling for a lot of people of wounding and injuring, you know, and it's something which is on one level arguably an inanimate thing. But that level of, I suppose, understanding it almost as an entity was very powerful. Yeah, and I, I know that you you talk a lot about in your book about New Zealand and how it has inspired artists and film directors and actors, it, the presence it has in that melancholic sense. Yes, yes, I mean, it's amazing when you look at a lot of New Zealand films, perhaps not so much the big blockbuster ones like Lord of the Rings and so on that are probably better known internationally, but a lot of New Zealand films, Once Were Warriors, Rain, films like that, is just this real brooding presence of the landscape. It's very much there is one of the characters and it's this heaviness and the gothicness of it. Um, Vigil is another fantastic one for that and it, often the, the characters as they are are quite sort of small in relation to this great menacing landscape and going 
speak through literature as well. There's always this sort of sense of being far away from everything and sort of here alone with the landscape. And it's, you know, it can be quite a, a threatening thing because, um, you know, there's a great book written by John Mulgan called Man Alone, which really says it all. You know, it's just us rattling around here down at the bottom of the world with this quite unforgiving landscape a lot of the time. And through that, having that, that powerful presence that you have to yield to a lot of the time. Now, Jackie, you say melancholy slows things down. It allows for percolation, facilitates solitude and solace for the imagination. Yet some people would see uh, melancholy as a sort of a negative state. Mm. You you mentioned that it's it's seen as a disorder of the intellect. Why is that? Yeah, I mean, it is quite conflicted in that sort of, um, for some people, that the slowing down and the deepening of the connection with things is very important and for others it's seen as this very negative thing almost a sort of a retardation of your relationship with your imagination or with knowledge and so on so it's a real 